Welcome to the 18th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of fashion, technology, and commerce. Joining me today is Andrew Lepofsky, the founder of Eponym, a company that designs, manufactures, and sells eyewear for a range of fashion and apparel brands. Luxotica is the omnipresent name in the eyewear space, which many know from the now infamous 60-minute special on the company's dominance. But Eponym set out to build a vertical eyewear license focused on brands that the big guy ignored. It's a really interesting story about new players entering an age-old space and how the internet has opened up the surface area for competition, no matter how big a company's monopoly seems to be. Here's my talk with Andrew Lepofsky. So I'm curious a bit about kind of your background, and then we can back our way into Eponym as it is today. Sure. So I graduated from BU in 2006, 2007, and I went to work for the guys that started the New England Patriots as a financial analyst for two years out of school. And then, you know, the financial crisis hit, there was a recession, and I also didn't particularly enjoy what I was doing. So that felt like it was a great opportunity to go and try to figure out what I was going to do next. So I guess my background is business and financial analysis, but, you know, I sort of wish I had studied liberal arts at some point. And then how do we get to eponym as it is today from that point? So I quit my job. And then, you know, one day I was invited by a friend to go to Vision Expo East, which for folks that don't know what Vision Expo East is, it's sort of like Coterie or Capsule or Magic, but for eye doctors. So it's like so, a trade show for eye doctors, basically. Yeah. And if you go to Coterie, it'll be like on the main floor of the Javits Center, and then there won't be anything in the basement, there won't be anything in like the adjacent wings. When you go to Vision Expo... This thing takes up the entire Javits Center. So like the bottom floor, the top floor, all the annexes, all the wings, all the hotels around the Javits Center are also booked with eyewear companies showing their products. So it's this huge, huge thing. Eye doctors make fashion buyers look really sort of 21st century, if you will. So eye doctors, they pride themselves on being medical professionals and not so much retailers. So these folks come and, you know, we'll buy like a season's worth of eyeglasses all in one fell swoop. So it's a really, really big show. And then apart from eyewear, they have things that like finished lenses and case manufacturers and folks that make luggage. So anyone really servicing the eyewear industry is is showing there. And I went there and I saw Luxottica and Saffalo exhibiting and Luxottica usually has a booth that is probably 10 times or 15 times the size of like your biggest contemporary brand at, at Coterie. So they take up a huge part of the floor. They usually have a stage with a performer. I mean, this thing is ridiculous, right? It's really a draw and amazing to see. And I went there and I saw both of them exhibiting and I saw that they make Prada and Tory Burch and Stella McCartney and Chanel and I was a savvy consumer, but I never knew that there were a couple of companies making all the world's eyewear. So I was really amazed. And then I went home that night and I realized when I walked into my own closet 
that all of my favorite brands, none of them made any eyewear. So brands in my closet were Stephen Allen, Rag and Bone, and Acme, and folks like that. And I asked myself, how come these guys don't make eyewear? And so it turns out that to partner with Luxottica, you've got to be a really big brand, right? Luxottica is 10 billion, I think, euros or dollars in size. And now that they're merging with Essilor, they're going to be even bigger. So they're really looking for partners of a similar scale. You have to be a luxury product. So you've got to be able to sell your products for four or 500 bucks to make sense for Luxottica. And then you shouldn't be cannibalizing their portfolio. So if they're making Ralph, they're not really interested in a, in a preppy brand. So I sort of began to think about that. And then I also began to think about, well, how do people really want to buy eyewear? Do they want to go to eye doctors? Some do, for sure. But also, lots of folks want to buy eyewear online. Lots of folks want to buy eyewear in the brand stores. You know, I think what we're learning is people just want to buy stuff where they want to buy it. It's not everyone wants to buy things online. It's not like everybody wants to buy things offline. People want to find the same products online and offline, and they want great value and not really rocket science. So I said, hmm, this is really interesting. Why don't we do this for all of our favorite brands? But since we didn't come from eyewear, we had to figure out, hey, how do we make eyeglasses? Right? I didn't come from Luxottica or Safalo or Markle or Marchand, so I said to myself, hey, if I'm going to go ask a brand to do this with us, we've got to prove to them that we can do it for them. So we started our own brand called Classic Specs, sub $100. You know, I think we invested ten or 15000 bucks, And we started selling out the Brooklyn Flea. And every Saturday and Sunday we would go and we would work directly with customers and try to figure out what they liked and what they didn't like and what they were interested in from an eyewear purchasing experience. And then what we did is we built that up into a little bit of its own business. And then one of my friends introduced me to Stephen Allen. And really, he's a fantastic guy. And I went and had lunch with Stephen. And I said, hey, Stephen, I've been a big fan of yours for a really long time. This is what I've done for myself. Imagine what we could do together. I know you could build a a great eyewear line, and I could help you do it and reach your customers. What do you say? And he said, you know, Andrew, I've been wanting to make eyewear for a really long time. Haven't been able to. So yeah, sure, let's do it. He said yes to me right at lunch, which was amazing, but it also spoiled me because I assumed that all enterprise sales... Just happened at one meeting? Yeah, it would just like be like that. Like I would wear something from the brand. <laughs> I would take them out to like a three-course prefix meal. Yep. And boom, I'd have like, uh, you know, 10-year license. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what I realized in hindsight... I got really lucky, and the reason I got really lucky, and I didn't understand this at the time, was Stephen is not only a fantastic person, he's also very nice. I call him like a modern-day Marvin Traub. So lots of folks have gone their starts with Stephen. And then he's also backed a lot of entrepreneurs, so he's invested in Refinery29 and Casper and... He'll tell you anything you ask him, but he doesn't like really make that readily known about him. So when you go and meet with him, he can really, from being a merchant and a supporter of entrepreneurship, he can really sort of like size you up. And he doesn't need what I call social proof to sign on to something. 
talk a bit about kind of like classics best and kind of how did you even know where to start or how to make the products or kind of what was that early process like? So that involved a lot of Googling. Yeah, it was a lot of Googling. You know, really like the way that we approached it was, look, you're going to go and like get something made. You're going to do a bunch of research on where like the product centers are for those goods being made. And I decided to fly to Hong Kong and, you know, there are a bunch of resources that you can use. You know, an early tool that I used was called Pangeva, which may still be around. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is when folks import things into the United States, the bill of lading right. gets logged with customs and border patrol. And so there are companies that by freedom of information act request all those bill of ladings and they digitize them into a database that you can then search like Google. Right. So you can search by company name or you can search by commodity type or by factory name and you can see who's making and who's importing things. Now, folks have wisened up to it, so lots of big companies import through agents or right. import through other shell companies, so their manufacturers aren't revealed. But it was a ton of research trying to figure out, hey, how does this like product get made? And you know, like when you're on the outside of something, you're trying to figure out and ask the right questions, but also not seem like you're an outsider Mm -hmm. because then people don't really want to deal with you, deal with you. Uh, So it was a lot of that. I flew to Hong Kong and I would basically like walk the streets in the new territories and I would like look up addresses for eyewear manufacturers and I would email them and most did not answer my emails my Cantonese is non-existent, so it was hard to call and to speak. But, you know, we had one or two that, like, answered the phone call, and they sort of, like, worked with us. In the beginning, we didn't really know what we were doing, and we didn't know the right way to approach it, but we knew just enough to be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we got it started. And Classic Specs is, you know, lots of really basic styles, great shapes and it's about the materials looking at it now it's a very easy line to produce so it's great that we could get started that way and now some of the things that we make are really intricate and really challenging to do and so if we had started with that we probably would not have been successful and so I'm very lucky that not only Steven said yes but Steven was a brand that I really loved and had one resonated with me and it was one that could be made with a more simpler type of product. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that both you and Warby as well started kind of selling out of a single entity for them. It was an apartment or so the story goes for you was Brooklyn flea. What were some of the lessons you kind of learned during that when you were able to be really hands-on with customers and kind of unscaled environment? You got to do things in a really small way. And there are some folks that, you know, take you from zero to 60. And there are some folks that take you from 60 to 200. And then there are some folks that take you from 200 onwards. And people still come to us today and ask us if we're at the Brooklyn Flea. We haven't done the Brooklyn Flea in four years. Customers really just love that connection. They love talking with the owner or the proprietor of the business, we would deliver 
glasses to people by hand who didn't have doormen. And we would be doing that. So we would go on like a ride to Gowanus at like 6 p.m. on like a Monday and bring it to someone. And so that's not lost on people, how hard and challenging that is. I think one of the other learnings that I really learned at the Brooklyn Flea was entrepreneurship comes in so many different shapes and sizes. And most entrepreneurship is not VC-backed. And in fact, most success is not VC-backed entrepreneurship. Most of the businesses built in this country and that are most successful are by folks that start in that way. And so it was amazing to see so many people just doing what they really loved from making t-shirts to selling typewriters to, you know, selling vintage clothing or even furniture. So that was really inspiring too, apart from the people who you sell to the other folks that are there that make that community is fantastic. And I think that's, you know, not to the folks that have created the, the Brooklyn flea. How did the thought process evolve from saying we're going to build a brand to we want to start doing what effectively is private label for additional brands? Was that always the intention or did that kind of happen more naturally? Yeah, that was always the intention. And Plastic Specs was really like an MVP okay. to get there. And, you know, the distinction private label I view as a different mm. set of terminology. So when I think of private label, I think of making something for someone and then, you know, selling it to them and then they sell it. Right. So it's a less integrated or kind of hands-on approach than what you do. Right. What we do, and I don't like the word that fits most closely to what we do either, which is licensing. But right. really what we're doing is we're partnering with the brand on their intellectual property, their most valuable asset. And we're helping build a vertical for them where we have specific know-how, not just around design manufacturing, but how the product gets to the, to the end customer. So be it on the website, we design and engineer to the way we you know, allow them to sell it in their stores. So it's kind of like a vertical license in a way. It's a ver- yeah, it's a vertical license. Yeah, Trademark that right now. Yeah, that's great. And so that was always the intention. So Stephen Owl was the first one. Mm-hmm. And then what were kind of the early days of that like? And then how did it kind of get you to the next customer? Yeah, so the funny story is we had to then go raise money. And I think Stephen always believed in us. But I don't think Stephen quite realized that when he signed up to do this, it was really like two people that he was going to do this with. So how did you decide to raise money? Yeah, and- yeah, so we had to like go and raise money. But, you know, the funny thing is for a lot of investors, they didn't know who Stephen Allen was, right? So we didn't go to like the TSGs and the ACGs and whatever else, right? Like we were going to venture folks who they understood the opportunity that, okay, if you can make eyewear for brands that Luxottica doesn't focus on, that's an opportunity. But they didn't understand that Stephen Allen would be an opportunity or any of the other folks. So it was challenging to prove to them that Stephen Allen was the right kind of opportunity. And in fact, even before that, it was challenging because many of them didn't think that any brands would ever hmm. sign up, right? 
startups are all chicken and egg problems. And then after we got Stephen Allen, people were like, who is Stephen Allen? Let me ask my wife is, you know, (laughs) (laughs) what they would say. Most of them. So we had to go and like figure out how to raise money. So we raised some money from a bunch of great folks who supported us early on. And then we had to like launch the business with Steven. And you know, the other thing is, you know, Steven was incredibly patient. There were lots of kinks to iron out. So yeah, we first started direct online and in his stores. But then what we realized over time was wholesale was also a part of the business Mm. that could be interesting. So we built that out and for fashion wholesale. And then we realized that, you know, even serving eye doctors would be important at a certain point. So we now do that too. So while we thought the business would be direct only, luckily, because we had a higher priced product, we had room to wholesale it for. So looking back, I think we got really lucky with that too. And Stephen was also an incredibly patient person. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're a good sized part of his business and we generate lots of new customers for brands and we spend a lot of money on marketing and hopefully we're made better by the brands and we make the brands better in certain aspects too. Yeah. So I'm curious to talk a bit about the market and I'm, I guess, especially interested in the shift from eyewear being sold at eye doctors to being something one would buy in a fashion store, department store. And do you have any insight you can kind of lend to that? And do you have any sense of like when that happened or maybe what some of the forces behind that shift were? Yeah. So I think Luxottica is to credit for a lot the of force. it. Yeah. So before Luxottica, eyewear was really a, a utility or a commodity. So if you look at a picture from the 60s or or 70s, people wearing eyeglasses, maybe not sunglasses so much, they, you know, would all have like three or four shapes, right? See all the guys wearing the Clubmaster or whatever. And before, that Clubmaster used to be made or other shapes used to be made in five different sizes for the frontal piece and then like five sizes for the temple. And your eye doctor would measure you and he or she would give you the appropriate size for the frontal piece and the appropriate size for the temple so between four styles you can have whatever size you needed and then what Luxottica did was really they were the first licensee for eyewear I believe from a fashion perspective and when they you know did this with Giorgio Armani that's when I think fashion really came into play And then I also think a lot has to do with accessibility. So the easier that I can buy something, the more likely I am to switch it up. Right. So the easier it gets to buy eyewear or sunglasses, the more trend that's injected to it and the more inexpensive it gets, the more people tend to treat it like an accessory. And so as eyewear moved into this new market, the distribution channels shifted as well away from kind of the eye doctor more towards the brand stores and Luxottica stores and kind of all of that. Yeah. Eye doctors are still a very big part of the business and even lens crafters, which is owned by Luxottica that still looks more like a doctor's office than it does a retailer. And I think that's purposeful Mm -hmm. because people will pay more for things that are aligned with their health and well-being than fashion. You know, apart from Luxottica and sort of these forces that make it more accessible and, you know, lots of trend being injected into the products, 
I don't know. I guess that's a bigger, it's a bigger question. Macro trend. Yeah. What years are we talking as classic specs? Stephen Allen started. So 2010, we started classic specs. Okay. It took us about a year and a half to get that going. Then late 2012, we met with Stephen or mid 2012 signed Stephen Allen launched it in 2013. So 2013 to 2015 was about scaling up Classic Specs and Steve Allen. Then we signed Allison Levy in 2015, Jason Wu, Billy Reed in 2016, and then Johnny was in 2017. So, I mean, I think one of the more interesting, if we just continue to call this, let's say, vertical license parts of this, and it's something I guess I've been quite interested in, is just kind of this idea of focus for fashion brands. And I feel like there are a lot of brands today that try and do everything and want to be good at everything. And there's generally kind of like a ceiling on how many things any company can be good at. And so for a fashion brand to work with a company like you is almost stupidly logical because why would they go out and learn this whole new expertise? Was that something that was obvious as you've been going through this, have there been brands that have tried to do this stuff all of themselves or is eyewear something complex enough that no one really tries to be that foolish? Yeah. So fragrance and eyewear right. are things that no one tries to do themselves. Some people try to do shoes themselves. That's really hard. Some people try to do bags themselves. Mm-hmm. That's hard too. But eyewear and perfume people generally don't try to do themselves because like perfume is sort of scientific and eyewear is highly technical, and especially the prescription part, mm. that's also medical. And nobody's really said that. But the way that I would explain it to folks is, okay, so a fashion brand, you might be doing 10% EBITDA, right? Maybe like 15% mm-hmm. EBITDA, like if you're truly stellar. But most of these guys, you know, they're at 5 7% EBITDA. Most of them don't even have that. So for you to say you're going to make eyewear yourself, you're basically saying that this licensee that's going to come in and pay me a royalty that could be 8% or 10% on retail price, that I'm going to come in and I'm going to do eyewear better than this company. Right, where that's all they do. Where that's all they do. And I'm also going to take all the risk that comes with it. So forget about you know, the inventory risk and the cost of capital. And then on top of that, a company like ours, you know, we're working with lots of different brands. They all make each other stronger. Yep. So are you going to go at it alone for a potentially lower return? Or would you like for us to partner together and go at it together and make each other stronger? Right. Because you're able to aggregate everything from the technical learnings in the factory to conversion on the website to even retail now, right? Across all of the different... Across all the brands. But also, you know, here's an example. You know, we have folks here that would be very expensive resources to have on just one brand. and wouldn't make sense to do that. Whereas if we have, like, a really amazing digital marketer spreading their love across seven brands, that makes a lot of sense. Right. And then we use all of our great brands to get the best pricing on all sorts of services. So, you know, an example is our PR firm. They're fantastic. And when they represent five or six brands, that means that when an editor wants to talk about eyewear, they're going to them first instead of going out to six different PR firms. Now that PR firm is known 
for having cool eyewear. So it makes the chances of success for our brands much higher. There's a lot less noise that they have to sort of like right. fight through. And then the same goes for our factories. So sometimes a brand wants a really unique piece that no one's ever going to make money on, right? Or that you need in a very, very low quantity. And so if we have that portfolio of high volume and low volume, we can really ask our partners and right. hold our partners' feet to the fire uh, and ask them to do something for us that they would otherwise not do. Luxottica obviously is massive, but also created the opening for a company like eponym to exist when you go up against an incumbent there are two approaches one of them is you're an idiot the other is you could be a genius because you know they're focused on their part why do you think this part was underserved in what we maybe call the emerging you know brands that aren't at the level of armani or gucci but one day maybe have aspirations to get there structurally they're not set up okay to do what we do right so they're these massive organizations that are built on just ingesting massive brands. So here's a really great example. We price our products according to core items from the brand. So Stephen Allen, 195 bucks for a pair of prescription glasses. That's because one of his shirts is 188 or $198, right? We pay royalties on the retail price. So folks will get a royalty off of 195 instead of the wholesale price which would be 60 bucks or 70 bucks for the eyewear. And then it would end up going to the customer for 500 or 400 with the optometrist or optician. So we can offer a lower price and a higher royalty and deliver the same exact product. Luxottica can't do that, right? Because they have this old school distribution channel that they need to push through the lens crafters or the sunglass hut or the, the wholesale piece that they either own or sell to. Right. The other part about it is we pay a royalty on the retail price. Now, Luxottica is paying Prada a royalty on wholesale. Gotcha. So let's say they want to try to do what we do. Are they really going to upset Prada or Chanel to pay a smaller brand more money? Right, so they're locked in. In fact, most of those agreements have what's called like MFNs, most favored nation. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, if they offer anybody a better right, deal, they have to match it. They they're automatically contractually obligated to offer them as good of a deal. Gotcha. So they're just like not set up to do that. And then the other way to think about it is, they've set up their business to cater to the three O channel, which is ophthalmologists, opticians, and optometrists, and really selling online for them would be a big, big sort of channel conflict, which they don't want to do. Gotcha. Okay, so you identified the structure of the businesses. They're interested in businesses that are way too big and ignore kind of the middle to the lower tier. Do they sell anything online or not really? Uh, no. Okay. So they're no totally No prescription missing. product. They may do some sun. Okay. Like on Raybound.com, but gotcha. no prescription. And then the last is they want to charge a lot of money for the products. So like H&M or Zara, even though huge business, right. would never work for them. Because the price point just doesn't make sense. No one's going to pay 400 bucks for a pair of Zara glasses. Yeah. That's okay. They'll pay 200 or 100 and, you right. know, yeah. What makes a moneymaker in eyewear? Like what are, what are the cash cows? Because you alluded to before that there's some pieces you know you'll never make money on, but what are the ones that kind of sustain? Some are really easy to tell and some are, you know, they just have that magic 
you don't know what it's going to be, but it just happens that way. You know, I'll give you an example for Alice and Olivia. We have a pair of sunglasses that's in the shape of a watermelon with Swarovski crystals. This thing is pretty cool. It's amazing. Okay. But you know, it's also a $325 pair of watermelon shaped sunglasses. And we're completely sold out of it even before it's hit shelves. So there are some things that just completely resonate with customers that you can never expect. And there's just sort of like that black swan effect when it comes to product. So I think like anything, product development is like 50% science and 50% art, or maybe sometimes it's 70% art, 30% science. It depends on the brand. You know, some brands of ours are 70% science, 30% art. Others are the other way around. And I wish there was a rule for it. Yeah. Is that emblematic of the kind of trend-driven nature of all this that we're in today? Because when you talked about before, kind of what it used to be, it was very commodity, kind of banal almost. But today, is it fair to say that eyewear also has to kind of compete in the same way that apparel or footwear or anything else does in terms of trends and kind of relevance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think unfortunately we are at this moment in history where there's just too much stuff. And I think customers want unique products that are priced with lots of value for them and delivered in a channel the way that they want to shop for it. Just as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, great. But customers are also much smarter. They're so smart. Like they know exactly what they're getting and they can sniff out if you're delivering a unique product and great value or not. You know, 10 years ago, you could sort of like hide that. Mm -hmm. You'd still need it, but you could hide it a little bit. Now you can smell and feel if something is great or not. And that's what you need to deliver. So you credited Luxottica before with kind of this switch from the three O's as kind of the centerpiece of eyewear to kind of more of the fashion piece. What sort of credit, if any, would you give to, let's say, Warby Parker for the price in terms of driving it down to a point where, you know, there are plenty of people and maybe you have this with you guys as well, where they have two, three, four, five pairs of sunglasses or eyewear as opposed to kind of the pair. Do you put any credit on them for that? Or was there something that did it before that they kind of rode the wave of? I do want to give them a lot of credit. They've actually made our lives a lot easier. They were on the forefront of a lot of sort of like macro things that happened in the industry. I think it's accessibility is the overarching theme, and that can be defined as distribution, price point, supply chain. So yeah, they've done a a great job at building a great brand. Has anyone ever tried to make eyewear in America? And or is it financially possible so in the old days all of it was made in america there was american optical you know ray-bans used to be made in america now you know ray-bans are an you know an american brand owned by an italian company made in china i think shinola is opening an eyewear factory Mm -hmm. in chicago but eyewear is also like really difficult we would come into brands and we would say hey, let's make eyewear, and they'd be interested. And they said, you know, it'd be like January, and they said, can we launch in fall? 
And then we'd say, no, you know, it's going to take us a year. And we do it a year where most folks take two years. They ask us, why does it take so long? Most people think that there's some sort of like machine. Just, just printing them. Printing them or shooting like a hot substance into a mold yep. and out comes a pair of eyeglasses. And those are injection-made products. And those you can get relatively quickly. Those you can get in two or three months. But what folks really wear, you know, if you're talking about Persols or even Warby Parkers or anything else, those are handmade products. And there's a supply chain that comes for the acetate. And then there's a separate supply chain that happens for the making of those eyeglasses from the acetate. So it takes about a year to make really great eyewear. It's also really challenging because eyewear is one of those things where you need a cottage industry surrounding it. So if you go to the places in Japan or China where we make our products, there will be entire towns dedicated to just eyewear. And nearby will be the screw factories and will be the acetate suppliers and will be the lens factories. So at the end of the day, even if you want to make something in America, you're still getting the acetate from Italy or China. We want to make it in the U.S., but we couldn't find even a single factory to do it. Actually, there's Randolph Engineering, but that's metal only. They don't do acetate in, gotcha. in America. Walk us through a bit, kind of, glasses from like A to Z. What parts are kind of mechanical or automated, if any, and then what parts are handmade in terms of getting to that finished product yeah so it starts with a big block of acetate that's about the size of a kitchen table that acetate is then cut into individual rectangular pieces then those rectangular pieces are put into like a jig and then the frontal shape is actually cut from that you know using a jig as guidance to cut it they also have cnc machines where you can now put that rectangular piece in a cnc machine and it cuts the frontal piece you know, you got to do the same thing with the temple. You got to figure out how to, you know, attach the hinges, how to create the base curve, which is the curvature on the front mm-hmm. and back of the frontal piece. You've got to then cool it down. You've got to, you know, tumble it and buff it if it has any sort of like laminations or applications to it or rivets. Just like a basic acetate frame, you're talking about 20 to 30 hours of work. Are there any parts of that process that could become more automated or is it pretty good how it is? It would be very challenging to automate it. The parts that are automated now are the CNC machines that mill the fronts and the temples. But that's really about it. I'm sure the more basic products will probably get even more automated. You know, when you're talking about attaching a leather Windsor rim to something, you know, we're talking about a factory of four or five hundred employees two people in that factory know how to do that so like anything else basic products are going to get more and more automated Mm -hmm. the more complicated the product the more artisan are there concerns or worries that there are less and less of those craftsmen so to speak out there or being trained today do you see a new generation of these people coming up or are they generally getting older actually as time passes the same thing that's happening here is happening abroad which Uh, is People want professional jobs and don't want to work in factories. That means that labor costs are going up. And in fact, even a lot of our partners, there are a couple that will unquestionably do really complicated work all the time. 
and you're paying a premium for that. But most of our partners, when you go in and you tour their factories, they show you the most state-of-the-art factories with all of these various capabilities. And then when you push them to do something that is hard or challenging, they all want to you know, make basic acetate right. styles. That's why Classic Specs has a part in our business, too, is the folks that will make that you know, beautiful watermelon-shaped pair of eyeglasses and will only make a couple hundred of them will then get work for you know making a thousand or two thousand of you know this one style that's really easy to do but i also question why they really want to do that work because it's so competitive Mm -hmm. and i view it from my perspective i know exactly how much a basic plastic frame should cost but then if i start adding swarovski you know the more design bling that this stuff has on it the more opaque the pricing is the the more of a premium you can charge both Mm -hmm. a consumer and the company that's having the glasses made so i wonder why they don't necessarily want to double down on kind of the differentiated product as opposed to the commodity yeah yeah so there's obviously a lot kind of politically happening right now specifically around kind of globalization and it seems that eyewear is one of the most globalized supply chains of physical products Mm -hmm. Are there concerns that something happens, whether it's import taxes or duties or any of that stuff that fundamentally unhinges the business model or anything like that for you and all of your colleagues and competitors? I mean, look, you know, we go to Asia twice a year and a lot of people talk about that. I think it's actually really hard to say what's going to happen. You know, luckily, I was high margin enough that we can might pay for this comment but uh we can withstand an import duty or two you know we're doing okay but actually margins on eyewear for at least the factories that produce them have halved in the last 10 years so before factories could produce Mm -hmm. at like a 20 percent gross margin and now they're producing at like a 10 percent gross margin and is that due to just competitive pricing pressure from the market not just that but Rising labor costs. Right. Which so those is, two things pushing towards each other, basically. Yeah. And, you know, while entrepreneurs in America may not see 20% gross margin as a great right. gross margin. For a factory, that's very good. For a factory, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a plan B? Let's hypothetically say something like that gets imposed. Is that a situation where eyewear industry kind of just eats it? Or is that something where you start looking to other countries, if any, to produce? So it's interesting because, you know, about 20 years ago, the Japanese, maybe a little bit over the Japanese and Italians, went to China and opened up factories and trained folks and got into lots of joint ventures. And now what we're seeing is a lot of the Chinese folks are going up and opening factories in Bangladesh and Cambodia and Vietnam. For for, eyewear. For eyewear. Okay. Yeah, whereas like Vietnam for clothing is been there been there yeah Yeah. exactly so i think at a certain point you know the bangladesh folks and the cambodian folks are going to be opening up factories somewhere else and then it trickles down and then it'll come full circle and then we'll be making stuff in america again this won't happen in our lifetimes Hmm. Interesting. yeah so i'm I'm like not (laughs) terribly concerned i'm not concerned about it because it's out of my control that's very reasonable I'm curious if you could expand a bit on the last part about 
coming back full circle to America? Because I was going to ask, you know, do you think there are things as someone who runs a company that manufactures stuff? Do you think there are things that we as a country can become good at making again? Or is that at least from a, you know, job stimulation perspective, somewhat of a lost cause? So lost cause is the wrong sort of way to think about it. But I think men America will mean something to some people. I think, unfortunately, most consumers are after value. Most of them just want to buy cheaper products. And so maybe that'll change. What I meant by my comment was right now we're the center for, you know, financial services and like these sort of right, technology uh, and, and at a certain point we'll, we'll be something else to folks. And then I'm curious to talk a bit about kind of the retail piece and just kind of how that's going and what the plans are there because you're opening basically licensed stores, right? In the name of the brands that you work with. Yeah. So we did that for Stephen Allen. And that was really an experiment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're doing okay. I think what we want to do is, you know, figure out what the right retail experience is. And for us, it's a couple of things. It's working with the brands to allow the brands to sell it in their stores. Right. Because you, you have this free distribution, basically. Free is a loose term. We, you we, have... We definitely pay for it one way or another. Straightforward yes, access. So we have that. It's about becoming good at that. And then becoming good with you know, standalone retail, everything's challenging, right? So online, you know, economics are great, but customer acquisition is expensive. Yep. Retail, customer acquisition is cheaper, but your rent, rent is higher, right? Yep. Depends who you think about as your landlord. Google is your landlord <laughs> online. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. So is UPS and FedEx. They're your landlords. Unless you can ship via USPS, it's going to be a really challenging yeah business you know we want to do more in retail we're figuring it out definitely were there any surprises as you moved into it that you either didn't expect or that kind of diverged significantly from online or wholesale because i I think the whole retail narrative is so interesting today because first it was retail's dead now it's like actually everyone's doing it and it's just doing it differently what a lot of people don't realize retail is like the original showroom small square footage you don't have a lot of back stock People don't expect to get their things right away, right? So it actually lends itself really well to that sort of experience. This whole thing of, you know, showroom and everything is very much a circle, not a new continuum in a way. Well, for apparel, it's new. Uh, for eyewear, it's the same old. I think so. That's an interesting distinction. Well, maybe the aspect of the showroom. You know, if you go to an eye doctor and you pick out a pair of eyeglasses, what happens is they actually have to send it to a lab that then edges the lenses in and sends it back to them. Right. Because they usually only have one pair. The display pair. Yeah. Final three questions. Most challenging and most rewarding part of the journey so far? Most challenging is getting folks to believe in you when you're like a small, tiny company with no credibility and having come from nowhere. So if I came from Luxottica and I wanted to do this, perhaps I would have some credibility. But... That's the most challenging part is building that credibility as an outsider. That gets easier. Credibility is not something you can have overnight, unfortunately. And the most rewarding part is the brands that we work with are truly excellent at being brands. So to come in one day and work with folks like Steven or Deanna and Stacy at Alice and Olivia or Jason or Billy and KP at Billy Reed or Rob and Rob at Johnny Waz. It's really actually like 
amazing to just have that sort of like circle of partners. Definitely. So that's actually the most rewarding part, I think. And then if you look kind of one, two, three years ahead, what's kind of the rough plans or trajectory? Is it more of the same? Are there new things to run? Kind of how do you look at the next one to three years? So we want to build an iMer experience looks like and what customers want that are our generation. I think that that's going to be different than LensCrafters and different than Solstice and all those folks. So we want to build that. We've got a good part of it figured out, but there's still a big chunk that's left to get figured out. Awesome. Well, you're six years in now. Yeah. So we're like, you know, just getting out of elementary school. No, we're just starting elementary school. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, onwards and upwards. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. and my thanks to him for his time on it. It was great talking with Andrew about the evolution of eponym into a vertical license and how such a move made perfect sense for the eyewear market. Focus is one of the most underrated aspects of business, and it's important that the industry has companies like Eponym that are specialized and lend that expertise to brands who can benefit but shouldn't go it alone. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Rachel Shackman of Story, Matt Scanlon of Nottam Cashmere, and Giancarlo Paternoster of Giancarlo Studio Furniture. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.